You're listening to episode 34, The Empathy Mashup. This episode is powered by Rogue Water, the public communication company founded by yours truly, the H2 Duo. Hi, this is Chris Long, professor of philosophy and dean of the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. This is the podcast that is demonstrating the transformative power of education. It's water in real life with my friends, the H2 Duo, Stephanie Zavala and Ariane Shipley. If the water utility folks are going to be leaders in the community like we say we are, then we're going to have to be authentic and we're going to have to be willing and, and, and wanting to uh, go out and be with our neighbors. These are our neighbors, right? These are the, these right. are the people that we're living by, we're working with. These are, these are our neighbors and, and we need to be out there with them. Empathy is defined as the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. This week's mashup theme is our core value of empathy and serving with empathy. In episode 17, we spoke with Chris Long, the Dean of the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Dean Long reminded us the value of taking the time to invest in true engagement with your audience. Only then does education have the opportunity to be transformative. In episode 23, Greg Wukash, our mentor at the San Antonio Water System, recapped for us the Transformative Issues Conference on Affordability, affordability hosted by AWWA and WEF, and how the closing panel of both water professionals and non-water community advocates drove home how empathy means inviting everyone to the table that needs to be. In episode 13, Blue Drop President Alan Heyman shares a story that demonstrates how empathy begins within, internally, with your own employees. Brand buy-in begins with them. And finally, in episode 16, we talk with fellow communication startup WaterPIO, aka Mike McGill. Empathy requires putting yourself in someone else's shoes, even, maybe even especially, your biggest opponents. We chat with Mike about both he and our experience with Aaron Brockovich and what it taught us about the power of walking a mile in someone else's shoes. So without further ado, let's get to the show. I realize that that he and I and and of course Ariane too, since we're you know one and the same basically, <laughs> that we are kindred spirits in this idea of collaboration and even and even though we're entirely different industries, so you're a perfect example of how I think we can benefit by looking outside of our respective industries and, and areas of circles of influence that we reside in to kind of brain share and find new ways to partner. So tell us why, tell us your story and why you value building community. Well, I think the connection that we made during the writing workshop for the public philosophy journal is a great way to start. First of all, let me just say, you know, although you might think that philosophy is far afield from the work that you're doing, let it just be remembered that one of the earliest ancient Greek philosophers, pre-Socratic philosophers, Thales, basically said the world is water. The, the primary yeah. element of the world is water. So we have to remember Thales when we, when we start uh, these conversations. I will now. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, our conversation really focused at that point around the question of community engagement and what I've been very interested in thinking about and modeling here at Michigan State as a land-grant university is a much more dialogical and reciprocal model for community engagement than we've seen in the past. So one way to think about this is historically, and this is a little bit of a caricature because you know community-engaged research and pedagogy have been functioning for, for many years, but 
there is a kind of model in which the scholarship that happens and the research that happens in institutions of higher education happens in somewhat isolation from the questions and the communities that are urgent for members of the public. Yeah. And so the, and, and you can see this sometimes when people talk about, well, applied philosophy or applied research. The idea being that you sort of work out the theory of it and then you bring it to the, the world. And that, of course, again, is a caricature. But what we're really interested in modeling are ways of engaging activists and members of the community who care about issues at the research agenda setting moment, at the question framing moment of the research process. So that it's not the scholars thinking about what might be interesting and important, but it's really in conversation with members of the community that we begin to come to a shared understanding of some of the questions that are most important and urgent for us. And that we allow that conversation to shape the research agenda and the theoretical endeavor. And then we allow the theory to be informed by practice and the practice to shape the theory. So that's kind of in a nutshell, the, the vision for this. I think that that piece is often sometimes the piece that so many times in our area, we tend to kind of jump over and taking the time to really invest in doing, asking the question of the people that we're actually serving. And so, um, you know, I was really excited to hear some of the things that, that you had to say in the value of that and the value of taking the time to ask the questions and, and ask them in different mediums, whether it be, um, a survey or whether it be a focus group and you know in in the academia world that probably comes and in the research world that probably comes more natural but as many of us in our industry are informal educators and so that's sometimes something that we just that we overlook you know and so it was it was really good to get that perspective from from you on the value of that um but go ahead i was going to say the the vision for the public philosophy journal is to do public scholarship with members of the public. And so the, the vision is actually quite different from a traditional academic journal, because what we're envisioning is a process of conversation and dialogue with members of specific communities concerned with issues that affect the broader public in some way. And then not just having that conversation, but actually engaging in the scholarly endeavor with one another. And that means we've created a kind of what we're calling a formative review process. So most peer review for academic journals is evaluative. You sort of have an expert read something and you decide whether it's good enough to publish or not. What we realize is in the digital age, the ability to publish is as easy as pressing a button, anybody can publish what they want on yeah. <laughs> their blog or on Twitter or wherever. Our podcast. And, or their podcast. And, <laughs> and yeah, we can get into that because I really love what, what you both are doing with the podcast and using the digital mode of engagement to bring your work to a broader audience and to engage a broader audience. And I've been very heartened to see the success that you've had doing this. It's really, it's really amazing. Thanks. It's been, it's been a whirlwind, but it's been, this is like the, the best part the of our fun. jobs yeah. is getting to talk to people and then share those conversations with 
uh, the rest of our people. So and whether or not we had a podcast, we were doing this already. So yeah, this right, is exactly. a bigger yeah. platform. Um, yeah. And what you don't, what, what you get from it. Yeah, exactly. And what you get from it, I think potentially is serendipitous, serendipitous con connections that you might not otherwise have had because you don't even know the, the community out there that, that cares about these issues. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and you, you touched on the, uh, the PP, uh, the public philosophy journal, which I will now be referring to the PPJ because it's so much easier to say. So everyone out there knows what I'm saying. Um, you touched on it a little bit, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a little bit more about that in just a sec. But um, one of the things that I think would be because as informal educators, we may not always have that experience of knowing even sort of how to begin to engage with the public in that way that that you're talking about. I would love to see somehow more of a collaboration with universities or, or higher learning institutions that can kind of give sort of a, a template or, you know, like some sort of guidance and, and the best way to do that. Because even in our, um, even in our experience with what we've been doing for, for our paper, we've had to rely on resources and, and people to ask questions of inside who inside of the traditional uh, higher education world who can say okay well if you ask your questions on your survey like this you're gonna your data is gonna be overwhelming or you're not gonna get the right kind of data or the right kind of answers and so it's been really helpful to have um, to have those kind of resources and I think that that would be that would be a really cool resource for informal educators, whether they work for water utilities or for, for other entities that don't maybe have that background, be able to have some, some sort of resource like that because that's been incredibly helpful. But um, so in our previous conversations with you, you know, I love how you talk about this old model of community, community engagement and that's kind of where the subject matter experts come in and are just these talking heads and there's no real mechanism for feedback from the listeners, but you and your team uh, at MSU are really taking this idea and revolutionizing the traditional academic view towards scholarship with the PPJ. So you touched on it a little bit already, but tell us a little bit more about what I kind of call this open source brain share that you guys are working on. I like that. I haven't heard that one before. That's, that's <laughs> good though. Excellent. I think one, one, well, it begins with a commitment to recognize that there are experts all around us, that everyone has expertise in, in areas inside and outside of the academy. And so we want to engage with one another with an openness and a willingness to learn from each other and uh, a willingness to kind of bring what we have to the concern we share. So that was the, the, the bigger vision of the PPJ was, well, okay, well, what is public philosophy? Everybody, we can go on and on about, you know, what does that exactly mean? But what we wanted to try to do with the journal was to engage in public philosophy as a practice of publishing about public philosophy. So unpacking that a little bit, what I mean by that is to say, making ideas public is at the heart of publishing. That's what publishing is. It's, it's making ideas public. And we recognize that ideas have transformative power. They have the power to shape and misshape our relationships with one another. Yeah. <laughs> as we've seen. So 
what we wanted to do was to engage with one another between the academy and the broader community around the scholarly practice. And so what we, what we decided to try to do was to create a, a journal that really was about a formative peer review process that engaged members who had expertise of all sorts in the issue. So what we, what we do is we invite people who are interested in something specific to submit a somewhat worked up paper to the journal. And then we have a peer review coordinator who, when they do that, by the way, they actually have to nominate a member of the community impacted by the ideas Hmm. to serve as one of the peer reviewers. And then the peer review coordinator on our side identifies a, a second reviewer. And these reviewers are not only thinking about evaluating the work for how good it is. They're actually, we ask them to look at four different aspects. We'll ask them to look at the relevance of the ideas, their accessibility, their intellectual coherence, and their scholarly engagement. And when you think about the issue of relevance, is this an issue of importance to a community? Yeah. And is it accessible? Does it, you know, rely on jargon or do you actually, are you able to talk in ways that are understandable to a wider variety of people? And so as we think about these different frames to, to evaluate and give feedback on the work, what we ask the reviewers to do is to consider the composers of the work a friend and give the kind of feedback that you would give to your friend to try to make this a stronger piece, a more compelling piece, to refine the ideas so they have more transformative power in the world when they're published out. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the idea. Yeah, I love that you talk about accessibility because that's definitely an issue that we struggle with in in our industry because of the technicalities and the regulations and the science. And I mean, gosh, we could have our own dictionary of acronyms and and things along that line and, and, Sometimes we forget that when we're communicating with the public, even at the most simplest example of there was this recent uh, study done by J.D. Power where they interviewed or surveyed some 40,000 water utility customers across the country. And they asked this question of water quality. Well, if you ask that to a question of someone in the industry, they're going to tell you things like disinfection byproducts or, you know, they're going to cite a specific type of contaminant that they're that they're looking to treat whereas all of the customers were citing things like water pressure and (laughs) taste and odor issues like some of these issues that for a utility from a regulatory perspective are you know that's that's the second tier that's aesthetics you know and and so just remembering that idea of accessibility and speaking to your audience and knowing who your audience is so I, I love that that's one of the things that you guys focus on. Well, I mean, what you're speaking to is this issue of the way in which wherever expertise is gained, that also brings with it a set of vocabulary, sometimes very important technical vocabulary that's been developed for good scientific or academic and scholarly reasons, but it's alienating to people. And what what we found is that by challenging experts of all kinds to put their terms in 
more broadly understandable terms, to put them, to, to unpack them in substantive ways, that they actually are learning a, to understand their own expertise in a deeper way as well. So, you know, it's not about, it's not about leveling off or flattening the ideas. It's about giving them the kind of texture that allows a broader community to engage with them. Before we did that, I thought one of, I wanted to wrap up the affordability topic with how the way you said that they closed down right. the, the conference that you went to, and that was by having a panel that not only included members from the industry and utilities, but also community advocates that are out there engaging with the public on these issues every single day. And I thought that's amazing and that we don't do that enough and that it's so important to reach outside of the circles that you roll in on a normal basis, because that's, to me, I feel like that's when connections are made and that's when the magic really happens. So can you kind of talk about that, that closing panel? Whoever, you know, put that together, it was a brilliant idea. It, it really was. It was incredibly impactful way to sort of bring everybody together that, that was there into one room. And then all of a sudden you had these, uh, these industry professionals who were, you know, who were not, who were top flight industry professionals, people who've been doing it for a while and, and with, you know, pretty big cities. Um, and they're literally sitting right next to advocates for, for uh, the poor. I mean, that's, that's what they yeah. called themselves uh, for affordability. And, 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 and that was just an amazing sort of juxtaposition of, of conversation, of ideology, of, of all of it. And, and, and they had had a conversation obviously beforehand because they had alluded to the fact that I guess in some of the conversation that they had had, I think things might've gotten a little heated, right? When they were talking, <laughs> they were, they were trying to work out some of those things before I think they, they brought it <laughs> into the room yeah. and, and put it on, put it on full display. But, but it was amazing to hear uh, the, the, uh, the utility professionals talk about what we're facing in our cities with infrastructure repair, the costs of that and watching the, the advocates kind of, their eyes get a little bit big in terms of like, wow, we hadn't thought about it that way. But then the advocates talking about how that's impacting the people that they serve and that they're with every day and watching the utility professionals kind of nod their heads going, wow, we, we hadn't really thought about that either. And so it was just this great conversation. And I, I will just say kind of as the last part for that, um, there was a, there was a woman there. I thought she just, she was really bold and, and very honest. She's from the Washington DC area. And she said, you know, the only time that y'all ever come to us, uh, to the community, the only time that we ever hear from you is when you're getting ready to, to do a rates increase. Yeah. And, and she said, and by the time you get to us, we already know that y'all are going to pass it. And she said, we're not stupid. We, we know it's already passed that y'all are just doing your quote unquote due diligence in the community. Mm. And, and I, I thought that was a really powerful statement wow. that, that yeah. really hit a lot of us in the gut and to go, that it's true. And that, yep. that a lot of times is what happens. So, yeah. Well, that's, I, I agree. I think that was a fantastic way to end on it and a fantastic idea to do because I think both of those perspectives are incredibly important for the affordability conversation and i hope that the organizers of conferences like the wefs and the awas of the world and i know there's probably several other conferences that are going to come out of that in regional scope uh make sure to invite all of the stakeholders to the table so we can mm -hmm. so we can get all of those perspectives 
One thing that we found in our experience is that sometimes utilities don't really see their entity or their organization as a brand. Um, how does Blue Drop frame that brand narrative for water utilities that really helps them see the value in cultivating that brand? This might be my favorite question. I have to tell you. Um, <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I haven't heard the rest of the questions yet. This, this could be the favorite one. I, I have branding pretty much on the brain at the moment because I just got back from vacation. And one of the things I did on my vacation was I took my nine-year-old daughter to the world of Coca-Cola in Atlanta. And this, I have to tell you, is a remarkable experience because you have hundreds of people standing in line together to pay $15, $20 to spend several hours being taken through a marketing and branding exercise. This is amazing stuff, you guys. This is amazing. And from the moment you walk in the door, it is a very controlled experience. You have a sense that you are being kind of emotionally manipulated a little bit through your exposure to this brand. Uh, but you're, you know, you're spending hours kind of feeling the love for Coca-Cola. And Coca-Cola is probably the most valuable brand in the world. I know they've done studies on this. It's irreplaceable. Everybody knows it worldwide. doesn't matter where you come from, what country, what age. Um, and and they, they get this stuff. And it was three hours of me sort of being a parent, but also being a marketing guy and watching how brilliantly they do all of it. And it applies to us. And when I give talks about branding, I mentioned Coca-Cola because we don't have a Coke versus Pepsi issue in the water sector. We do not have, in many cases or most cases, competition. We're not competing for market share. And we're also, by the way, not selling sugary fizzy water. What we do, I believe, is more important. I, I think you might agree a little bit. Just a, a little, little bit. bit. Just a little and bit. So, slightly. Um, but we do have certainly competition for market share. And we do have, uh, sorry, in mind share in terms of people's attention span, uh, because it is consumer-facing brands that are capturing all their attention through advertising, et cetera. And also, we have the same attachment to the value of a brand that a Coca-Cola would. A brand is a rallying cry for your employees. It is something for them to unite behind as a common purpose. A brand is something that the user, or in our case, the customer, uh, can feel proud of. And when that brand is attached to a municipality, to a location, to let's say the District of Columbia, there's a tremendous amount of local pride that comes from having good water that you can rely on, a utility that you're proud of uh, because the service is effective and it's doing what it needs to do for the customers. And the brand sort of encapsulates all of that. So back in 2010, uh, when I was working for George Hawkins for the second out of three times, uh, he had this idea that what we really needed to do was reconnect with the customer in D.C. You know, it was a relationship that either was broken because of water quality issues or didn't exist because we had so many people moving into town who kind of didn't know the good work of the utility. And the way that we put that forward was through a rebranding. So we took DC WASA at the time, which was something that nobody really understood because it's not intuitive. And we made it DC Water. We didn't change the legal name of the entity, but we got the lowercase DC, the green, the environmental, the friendly, the water drop. Uh, and we, we put it out there. And we put it out there everywhere. We put it on signs. We put it on uniforms and vehicles and tote bags and reusable water bottles. And we used the rebranding as an occasion to get in front of the customer. And it was something that they got. And we were starting to get stories like, 
uh, how restaurants were featuring the fact that they were making their ingredients with local BC tap water as a selling point, which would have been unimaginable five years earlier. Right. Oh my gosh, awesome. that is amazing. Yeah. So, and it was, it was fun, honestly. We had an in-house graphic designer named Ted Coyle, uh, who's still with DC Water and does amazing work and pulled together all the elements of the brand from a public art competition that we had. Uh, and we rolled it out kind of on the cheap using in-house resources and, and gradually replacing things as they wore out or needed to be replaced. And we put DC Water on the map, both locally, but also, as you know, in the sector for having done that work. So now you have the ability, if you're a utility that wants to rebrand, to hire the same expertise that did the DC Water project back in 2010 through Blue Drop. We've done one rebranding project uh, for a small Northeast utility that's not quite ready to roll out, but is complete. Uh, and we're actively seeking other, other clients to do the same. And it's, you know, it's, it's probably the only team of people who has done a rebranding from the inside for a water utility that's available for hire. And I think that's a powerful statement. And I think it, it, is, it is something that we know how to do. And we also know how to socialize internally once it's done, which was an important piece for us. Because if you can imagine, with DC Wassa at the time getting negative news coverage almost on a daily basis in uh, small neighborhood publications like the Washington Post, uh, <laughs> for example, uh, what does it feel like to come to work at an organization where that is occurring? You have this new and shiny thing you can unveil and people are proud of it all of a sudden. It's very powerful. Uh, so we can help with the sort of the internal work that's necessary to do the socialization to rally people behind that new brand as well. Can I get you to expand on that a little bit? Because that's something that Ariane and I are definitely um, are definitely very passionate about. And where you guys excelled at it, we actually failed at that because um, when we had this monumental moment for the city that we worked for, it was their 100-year celebration and birthday, and we were working really hard to create um, a celebration around it that we could bring the community into and the public into, but we wanted it also to be an opportunity for, to, to showcase our employees and to highlight them and what they were doing. And cause that's also something that we're very passionate about. And where we, what we found was that when we asked them about it later, like in some cases at some of the events, some of the employees didn't show up and we were like, what's up? Why didn't you guys come? And, and the feedback that we got was, was like, well, this was just one more thing that we had to do. Like, we just wanted to go home. Like, they, it had never been communicated to them why we were doing all of this stuff that it was really to, for them and to shine that light back on them. And then when we told them that, they were like, oh, well, why didn't you tell us that? Because <laughs> we would have come. And so that was really a learning moment for Ariane and I that we were like, wow, you really have to start from within so that you can get that buy-in because they're they're your um they're the ones that are out there every day out on the streets with your with your customers they're the ones that are your customers are most likely to see and engage with and <laughs> we learned the hard way that you know you have to communicate the why to them first and then that way they will be bigger ambassadors for you moving forward so I'd love for you, since you guys right, to share with us kind of how you did that internally to make that work. Yeah, I, I, I have to say it sounds a little bit like you answered your own question, but... <laughs> no, but I want to hear you say it. <laughs> All right. So uh, aside from the kind of the, the craving for new leadership, 
uh, and the, the craving for some public recognition for what the job entails beyond these awful headlines that were coming almost on a daily basis. Um, we, we kept it fairly quiet internally. Uh, we were concerned that it would leak. Uh, and given the amount of press surrounding then VC Wassa at the time, we knew it was going to be a big story when it did get out and we wanted to control it. So what we did was we actually took a small group of people, maybe seven or eight of them, if I recall, or maybe a dozen, and we shot a commercial announcing the new brand with them and kind of swore them to secrecy. And we went to all of the different major locations throughout DC the day before the unveiling. I think the unveiling was a Tuesday, so this would have been the Monday. We played the commercial. We announced the brand with George. We took questions. Uh, we sort of got the temperature of the room and got people excited. We may have handed out some water bottles, if I recall correctly, or maybe we did that the next day. And we invited them all to the unveiling, which was public and happening at one of our largest facilities the very next day. So involving them in the process was, was key, but we did more of it after the unveiling than we did before. And so one thing we got for example, just from memory, was we went to our sewer, sewer services group, which is not located with anybody else. They have their own campus and, and headquarters. And because it was DC Water, we got a couple of folks asking, well, what happened to sewer? Because the District of Columbia Water and Sewer Authority is the legal name of DC Water. Is there going to be a DC sewer? Are you spinning us off? Are you forgetting about it? So it, it fell to George and to me and to the rest of the team to kind of explain, no, we're simplifying the expression of the brand because really everything we do is all about water. What you do in sewer is absolutely all about water. It's about cleaning the water and putting it back in the water. So we did that. And then it took a while to socialize with the uniforms because some people were kind of attached to the old logo having worked for us for decades and maybe the logo before that. Uh, we did some logo patch replacements on people's uniforms. Uh, and then we did a, a thorough and clean sweep, uh, which took a while. Uh, in terms of individual department uh, purchasing and use of the brand. We consolidated it all in my external affairs group and said, all right, the new stuff lives with us. You've got to use us to use the new stuff. And I remember when I joined the organization as a new director, uh, people were meeting me. They were excited. They were introducing. I was collecting business cards. There must have been 17 different styles of DC Wasa business cards stemming logo usage to ink colors to paper because every department had its own printing contract you know etc so we drastically scaled back the number of promotional items that the logo was being used on the rationale being a it should be something that's actually useful to people if you're going to hand it out but b if it falls in the street no one will question why you spent ratepayer money on it uh we started doing uh eco-friendly apparel recycled uh you know textiles made in the usa kind of stuff uh, and we handed out thousands upon thousands upon thousands of reusable water bottles, starting with our own employees. And this is a story I love to tell uh, because it, it sort of got outside of my swim lane, but I took it on anyway. We, at the time of the rebranding, were actually selling bottled water in the vending machines at DC Water. Put that in your head and swirl it around for me. And so it was a challenge. First of all, because people like cold water when they're out doing stuff. And, and secondly, because there was an arrangement that we had with the vending company where there was a uh, like a rebate. So a certain amount of every purchase would go into a fund that they would then use for things like the office holiday party. So essentially, DC water employees were being entertained by the sale of bottled water on campus. <laughs> that, yeah. Wow. That's just so, like a yeah. moral dilemma right there. Exactly. 
So I had a very forward-thinking facilities director who was a colleague at the time, he still is. And we partnered with him and with the water quality group and we put in different kinds of filling stations all around the, the campus. The sort of thing you now see in an airport attached to a drinking fountain, where you fill up the bottle was kind of uncommon at the time. So we put a bunch of those in and we gave bottles to anybody who would sign a pledge saying, I will not drink bottled water while I'm working at DC Water. Uh, and you know, that worked. Uh, you know, because there was skepticism about water quality even internally, especially among folks who didn't work in that area. And so we got them out in the public kind of carrying their reusables. And that was a big step because they realized even if I'm in finance, even if I'm in legal, even if I'm in sewer, we're in the water business. And for us, uh, as a combined water and wastewater utility, we realized that the tap water was the most direct emotional connection to the customer. So we, we chose to use that in our marketing as often as we possibly could. Yeah, that'd be like drinking Pepsi at that Coca-Cola yeah, facility. Yeah. Exactly. You'd be kicked out for that sort of thing. Ooh. Wow, man, those are fighting words for some. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah, especially for people treating it like, what's, what's he saying? What's wrong with my water? So that's, that's a great story. I love that bit of anecdotal evidence related to that. Aaron Brockovich came in hot on the uh, North, um, North Texas Municipal Water District go over some, uh, they were doing some treatment plant maintenance and some of the peeps got a little hot about that and she came in hot and I saw this thing on the news and I came into work, actually I don't even think I wrote it at work, I think I came, I sat down at my desk at home and I just, I, I wrote this open letter to her right. that right. was essentially like, Hey girl, I mean, I, I feel you like I, I respect where you're coming from, but like, don't come in hot on my industry. I got a little hot, you know, cause right. that's how I was born and raised in my, in, I was raised in this industry career wise. And so I put that out there in the world and, um, you know, people in the biz were like, thank you for posting this yada, yada, yada. And, um, I get this tweet from this guy named water earth from this entity called water pio and a bit of both. Uh, yeah a little bit of both yeah. yeah and he was like hey girl <laughs> saw your blog um what's up you you guys need yeah. some assistance up there because i've had a run-in in that situation too but right. i gotta tell you kind of the funny flip side of that because like i was like oh hey what's up and arianne went straight like sketch <laughs> yeah. I mean, well that's that's great that's good that yeah i was like who does he think he is with. yeah yeah like okay is he trying to capitalize on what we're doing or, or, or where we're at i'm like who is this guy i, I don't know him he don't know us <laughs> yeah i mean that's just the way i am i'm i, I go straight who are you who well, do you i'll tell you what i'll tell you what and it's a good a good place for me to start i, I let's let's i started before you nanny nanny boo boo um, <laughs> And, but, you know, I saw that you would start it up as well. And obviously I'm in North Carolina, you're in Texas. So I didn't, I didn't think that, you know, we'd, uh, we'd cross paths or territories or anything like that. But I saw what you were doing from afar and I was admiring it. I mean, you know, knowing the difficulties of my own startup and the fact that there aren't people like us out there to help yeah. uh, utilities that I thought it was a great, obviously I thought my firm was a great idea. I thought your firm was a great idea as well. And when I saw the open letter, yeah, I could see where you thought, hey, what's this guy doing? But, <laughs> no, um, it's, but, it's my personality. She's naturally yeah, suspicious I'm, of I'm everyone. 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 <laughs> well, I'm like, hmm. 
Mm. So, yeah, and, and I could see why, because I did, you know, I, I sent you a message. I said, look, I, I dealt with Aaron and, and everything down here in North Carolina. In North Carolina, we had an actual toxic chemical found in our uh, drinking water supply. And I had represented the utility that was involved before I left and started my firm. So I was in the middle of all that. And Erin uh, had mentioned that she was coming to town. So I figured she was coming to town to, like you said, come in hot, blow my doors off. And so I reached out to her in advance and got to talking to her. And, and you know, we haven't talked much in the last few months, but we, we talked a lot over the, the first year of the whole Gen X issue down in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to reach out to you and tell you that, it, you know what, if you reach out to her directly, then you might be pleasantly surprised uh, about where she's coming from. But I didn't disagree with the fact that in the situation down in Texas, that she was coming in hot. I mean, they were going through a chlorine burn and, and they had kind of relied on what they had always communicated in the past. And when some people took issue with um, what they perceived was lack of communication and what they found, what they felt were quality issues that caused rashes, um, and they were kind of treated a little bit with the back of the hand about the situation. You know, they were able to bring her in and she started firing without having the full perspective. And I know that's what you were trying to provide in your open letter, but I figured I'd reach out to you and say, hey, listen, in her case, if you reach out to her directly, maybe you could work on it together. Um, because I know- We definitely appreciate that. Yeah. appreciated that. You won me over. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Your 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 awesome little phrasings like blow my doors off like I was like oh this kid's cool I like him yeah (laughs) but we knew like instantly like when we actually started conversing through text email and we had some phone conversations we just knew we knew instantly that you know your stuff and you have that experience and you do a really good job at you know helping people through that because. You know, even for us being on the outsider when that happened, we were kind of like, it makes you like, ooh, like, I yeah, mean, right. I understand how utilities have that natural reaction to be like, ooh, no, no, but, but I mean, like, you really came in and you were like, no, it's going to be okay. <laughs> Maybe we well, can work them out with this. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're defenders of public water. I mean, that's, yeah. that's who we are. We're defenders of public water, the, the, the good yeah, work of the people. <laughs> Yeah. All blue suits. Um, but, you know, it, it, the good people who work in water, you know, they, they, they're public servants. They don't do it for glory. They just, they, and they deserve to have their stories told and their actions defended. And when you have situations like that where because of a, uh, we'll just call it a, a lack of, a lack of will to perhaps go out there and really push out communications to the public and the customers with respect for the, for how they're thinking and feeling, then it harms the entire, it can harm the entire industry. And that's where I think we come in as communications professionals to say, listen, there is a way of going about this that's better, that'll help everyone involved. And that is to improve your customer communications, your outreach to the public by telling your story. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, like you kind of giving us that inside of working with her and being just being a human being and opening up a dialogue and having a conversation. That's kind of really what inspired 
me to reach out to her. Uh, I believe that was in April to um, to do just that and uh, scared to death out of scared the death out of Ariane because she had Again, no idea. Suspicion, fear. Yeah. <laughs> I go straight to worst case scenario. You know, oh, I good, well. and, uh, and Yang. she. She, I mean, she wasn't a huge fan of the blog. She felt like I took some, um, some, some digs at her, but you know, I was like, um, she came in hot in her initial response to me, but I was like, I was like, Hey dude, I appreciate your candor because you know, candor is something that a lot of people don't really have these days anymore. But, um, and I said, I appreciate that. That's not where I was coming from, but you know, let's just have this conversation. And we actually ended up having a very positive conversation with her for like an hour and a half that, um, you know, we're looking forward to sharing with the world at a later date. And hopefully she she agreed to be on the podcast, but you know, she's, she's traveling everywhere. So we haven't locked down a date for that yet, but like you were really the one that really inspired us to remember to just like, to, to (laughs) be brave enough to have that conversation. That's a, yeah. Well, I'll say this. I had to do it at a little bit of, you know, let's call it self-preservation. I mean, my, I was out there. I had had um, questions about what I knew and when I knew it, and I fully answered them. And and the the press down here still uses me as an independent resource for information because I was open, out there, transparent, the whole situation. Proactive. (laughs) Proactive, exactly. Answered every question. And, And that's the way you know, in dealing with Aaron, as you, as you learn when talking to her, once you talk to her, you get over that. I, I actually helped broker some meetings down here by people who were just as nervous as you are for, and rightfully so because she does come in hot. And that's when, um, you know, my experience of being on the phone with her for hours on end, you know, I thought it might be helpful. And, and as you imagine, you had an hour and a half conversation. And I think what you take away, yes, the approach is not what, you and I would consider the best when it comes to um, solving the problem. Uh, however, she deeply cares about drinking water. She deeply cares yeah. about the threats to our drinking water. She deeply cares about how we fix our drinking water and we keep it in public attention and, and try and stop the pollution that's threatening our source waters. And, and I give this presentation a lot. I consider emerging contamin- the emerging contaminant issue to be the next big threat to public confidence in drinking water. And it's something the water utilities, it's not their fault, but we're going to have to address it for years to come. And I think that's a lot of where she comes from. But um, yes, the water she immediately puts water utilities on the defensive, especially if they don't communicate with her. The, the, the quickest way for her to light them on fire is for them to treat her as an outsider that shouldn't be dealt with. And yeah, that's right. the biggest mistake. Yeah, because I, you know, hearing you and your experience and having our conversation with her, you know, while like, well, yeah, that is her approach to come and hot. That's also just who she is as a person. Like, you know, she herself said that um, the real Ed Maisry said that, you know, Julia Roberts nailed you, girl. Like she got all your sass and she portrayed that on screen. Like that's just who she is. And um, she she comes in hot about everything. And so we're not going to be able to change that. And I don't even really see her as the enemy really. Cause to me, right. what we're up against is really this break in public trust, you know, especially right. after, 
things like Flint made the national news during the presidential election. So they're going there for some of their debates. You know, it was really right. in the public, the public eye. Um, so how does the way a water provider communicate with their customers really impact that issue of public trust? Well, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about my experience with Flint to, to start off a little bit. It was an issue that even though it didn't have any connection to what my utilities were doing at the time, and I, I kind of worked, I went from one utility to another during the whole, uh, the, you know, when Flint made news, every single water utility had to answer the question. Um, yeah. And and rightfully so. I mean, it was a concern, but I, I was, I'm always quick to tell people that the situation what happened in Flint is very, doesn't really have a connection to your own water utility. And it takes some explanation, but you have to be forceful about it because sometimes it's easy to make that, to make that quick jump. Oh, I've got a water quality concern. We're another Flint. Mm -hmm. now, Flint was a tragedy, a criminal tragedy on many levels. Um, and, and uh, you know, it, you had a situation where you changed to a different water source and you took off the corrosion control and there were, and there were um, decisions made based on purely on money. And then once problems were found, there was a cover up. And uh, so yeah. that is entirely different from, say, the issue of emerging contaminants, which is what I explained down here. Here you had regulatory loopholes taken advantage of by a company. They dumped the chemical into the water supply without any check on it for 29 years. And then when they decided to market it, they had to come out and, and say, well, it's here now. And then the study is done. It finds it in the water supply. And then the water utilities have to react to it. It's an entirely different construct. But when it comes to, to building public trust and dealing with public trust, it's what you and I, you know, when we've talked, when we first had our discussions, it's about building blocks. You are a water utility. You provide an essential service for the quality of life for your community. The days of being out of sight, out of mind are over. You need to go out there and communicate with your customers. They are paying for an essential service in this day and age with instant communication. They expect to be told about the services that they pay for. And, but here's the thing, this is where some utilities get scared and some utilities jump on the opportunity because you have to communicate because there is a feeling you must meet that expectation. There is the opportunity to communicate what you do and how you do it. They are going to be more willing to listen to you and hear your story. And that's what I talk about with utilities there. I have a list of three or four dozen stories that you can put out to the public that you can put in bill stuffers, new newsletters, go out to mass media, post on social media that explain what you do and how you do it and show the hard work of the employees who live in the same communities as your customers. And by doing that, you do that outreach, you, you boost the relationship, you build trust. JD Power has done uh, phenomenal water customer surveys over the last couple of years. Yeah. They interviewed 40,000 customers from 87 utilities all across the country. And what they found is what you and you and I have known all along is that if you communicate with your customers, they believe in you more. Mm -hmm. They found that one communication within three months, if a customer could recall it, a proactive communication, customer satisfaction scores went up, up to 20%. If they were communicated with proactively six times in 12 months, 
then customer satisfaction scores went up up to 30%. So it's not, you know, we hate, I hate to say it sometimes, but I always throw it in because it gets a laugh. It's not rocket science. It's about building a relationship with your customer through communication. How do you build relationships with other people? Yeah. Just, not even your customer. simple. Like, it's just, you communicate. Yeah. You communicate. So that is where, you know, I make the case to potential clients and their presentations that look, you can do this. It doesn't require a lot of effort, time or, or resources. A modest commitment of time and resources will get you uh, an exponential benefit. We hope you enjoyed this mashup and tune in every Monday as we drop new mashups leading up to season two that drops on January 28th with the George Hawkins, a.k.a. the Bono of the water industry. So I have a few action items for you before we part ways today. Number one, if you haven't already, please make sure to sign up for our email newsletter by going to vh2duo.com. We want to keep in touch with you and email is really the best way for us to do that, especially to let you know about new episodes when they drop. Second, please check us out on iTunes and rate and review the Water in Real Life podcast there. Third, please share, 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 share. We do sponsored ads, but it just means so much more when it comes directly from a friend. And finally, did you know that Ariane and I own a public communication company called Rogue Water? Yeah, this is our chance to work together, y'all. Check us out at roguewatergroup.com. And shoot us a message if you think there's a way that we can work together to do the work that matters. We hope you learned something new today, got a little different perspective, or did something that moved you one step closer to your goals. Until next time, remember what one of our favorite quotes says, those who tell the stories rule the world.